0: check 1 check 2 all right i've been uh, reading a lot um i've been currently reading a book called uh, the sacred mushroom and the cross by uh, anthropologist and ling- linguist uh John Imalegro, it's a book I heard being passed around, and uh, it's a very interesting book. It's about pretty much how all Abrahamic religions, and near most religions as a whole, it's a, it's a pretty strong attack, not only on Christianity, but all Abrahamic li- religions, uh, Judaism, Islam, Christianity, any subsects of those three, monotheism as a whole. Clearly, uh, John M. Allegro had his own personal feelings and uh, disdains for both faith and traditional religion, which is would was less common. Fifty plus years ago, or throughout the nineteenth and twentieth centuries, but uh, has become more and more common in today's world. It's become more and more common in the twenty first century. Yeah, uh, the, you know, the year twenty twenty two. Ever since the internet has kind of swarmed and consumed the you know globe. Anybody who has access to the internet has access to pools of information where you can really gravitate towards such an individualistic uh, perception of the world. Anything you like or dislike, you can find a group of people ranging from thousands to hundreds of thousands to, in some cases, millions of people who agree with you on a specific topic, who agree with you on a specific opinion, and through that, uh there's a complete veil being torn between the what truth is opinion versus truth and it, it's it's funny cuz it's stuff that you know the bible written 2000 years ago in letters accumulated to form the bible and things that were written thousands of years ago how they talk about things like this the the veil between you know truth and fallacy the veil between What's an opinion and, and what is a fact, and how you can have your opinion and it not be a fact, but you know they' they're completely different things. Uh, having your favorite color ble- being blue doesn't make blue the best color. Having your favorite color being red doesn't make red the best color. But with, you know, through the internet, you can get on a forum where you know, half the world, or a, a large percentage of of the world on the internet, will say no red is the best color and then you're just solidifying that in yourself that like oh I'm right like I'm my favorite color is the best color versus the reality of it being an opinion not truth it might be your favorite color it doesn't make it the best color two completely different things but uh, the book I've been reading has been very enlightening for myself as far as exercising my own faith and exercising my own theology and philosophies about how I perceive Christianity, not to take away from the facts of Christianity, them being completely different things, but setting myself up for um, accumulating as many tools as I can that allow me to defend my faith when I need to and where I need to appropriately. And so I utilize my own blog, I utilize my own writings and journals and essentially making my journals public um, and allowing my journals to be public, not only for my own sake, but for uh, the the sake of others who are seeking to learn more or um, as I'm growing in my own faith for people not only now, but in you know, 50, 100 years, as long as the Internet's going to be existing, to be planting these seeds where, in all these corners, you know, this, this in the infinite vast universe that is the Internet, for there to be pockets where truth can be found and uh, pockets where faith can be expounded and specifically where Christian liberty can be expounded. And so, these Bible studies are a way for me to grow my own personal faith, I'm alone in my room with my recording equipment, and my goal is to just openly share these secret closed meetings with people for the future, Uh, whether it's my kids or my nephews or my nieces or my grandkids one day or random people on the other side of the world who can tune in uh, and learn more about Christianity as a whole So, not to get too off topic But diving into Acts Chapter 8 I really hope this isn't your first Time listening, but if it is Please go back Listen to the whole book of Luke And then following through to This chapter, Acts chapter 8 It is Saul Ravages the Church So, following through The stoning of Stephen Or Stephen I've heard it said many different ways. Uh, I like to say Stephan because of the PH, and that's how it feels right to me, but Stephan was stoned. And at the end of the chapter 7, when they, it says on verse 58, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. So just as, Jesus was persecuted. The disciples are now being persecuted. Jesus was, you know, crucified, resurrected, ascended. His disciples have been building the church, uh, creating more disciples. Stephan was one of seven who were elected. Uh, they were performing miracles, teaching, preaching, pretty much the exact same way as first century or first person relationships to Jesus. So those 12 disciples that we talk about and, and that everyone knows. They're doing similar things. so now Stefan is being stoned and they're and they're you know, killing him. and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So Saul is this Greek Hebrew man in this area, and they're all witnessing this, and as Stephen is being stoned, he's falling to his knees and he cries out with a loud voice. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Saul ravages the church, going into chapter 8, and Saul approved of his execution. So this Saul is going to be, I mean, we're at the beginning, right? You have the Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. Then you have Acts following after, which is the Acts of the Apostles. And then it goes on through these letters and the aftermath of Jesus' death and resurrection. This is all in the aftermath. Christianity for the past 2,000 years has been built off of these not only events that occurred in the aftermath, but the church itself and the structure of the church was forged and formed through these critical years um, really, there's a 300 year period where Christianity, you know Jesus dies, he's, he's crucified, and there's this 300 year period where Christians are being persecuted, sought out, executed, lied about, and and those and the lies continue to this day about who Christians are and it's a type of sorcery or uh, it's a type of mythology or it's a they're just crazy people. Um, A lot of the stigmas you'll see being cast out uh, in political environments, they ring true today just as they did back then. And and those lies and the seeds of those lies were planted during this time, 2,000 years ago. But the truth always came forward, and because it was true and the things that were being talked about were true and the things that the people were seeing were true, these seeds caught, they rooted, they deep-rooted, and then they spread like wildfire. And that a term used a lot, spreading like wildfire. And, and it's kind of sad because, it, you know, wildfire, it feels like that it means destruction. But the truth is, is that it was like, it was spreading because it was healthy. The, the truth behind these stories, spreading like wildfires to signify them spreading very fast. And it was covering all. And so there was no stopping it. And when Rome, you know, sent its legions after the Christians, it failed. And a lot of historians and even theologians argue and debate whether or not Christianity legitimately led to the collapse of Rome. Uh, from the studies I've been doing, it was an accumulation of a lot of the collapse of Rome was inevitable, but it was an accumulation of a lot of things. The moment the Republic fell is the moment. Rome was doomed to fail. And then as the Caesars took over, uh, and they, and they sought towards singularity, and, and you see it in the Bible, it talks about it in the Old Testament, how man's desire to be ruled is part of man's downfall. It's a, it's a poor characteristic in humanity. But the Roman Republic was an answer to that, and it worked. Uh, and that's why Rome lasted, and there's still imprints of Rome, even in today's culture and in today's economy and global society. but the Roman Empire, as they knew it back then, you know is, is far gone. And, and Christianity was a domino in it, but in potentially a, a catalyst in speeding up the process of the collapse, but alone Christianity was not the cause of the collapse of the Roman Empire. But in that. Roman did, the Romans did fail to stop Christianity. And not only did they fail, they were, they ended up being converted. So now as Christianity was spreading like wildfire, as the truth was consuming all who came into its path, it actually consumed, spiritually consumed the empire from the inside out. And it took about 300 years until Constantine not only was converted to Christianity, one of, one of the close to the last emperor's Rome, but then he actually made Christianity the official religion, leading to a split, leading to the uh, Roman Empire fading away in making room for what became the Roman Catholic Church, making room for what we know today as the lineage of the popes and what we know today as the Vatican and the authority and power of the Vatican, which comes with all of its risque rumors and the the baggage of the Crusades and all, all of that stuff. So when you follow the trail of Catholicism back to its roots, you actually see that Peter, who is the rock of the church, one of Jesus's, the leader, not only the leader of the disciples uh, amongst a lot of theologians, but Jesus proclaims Peter as the rock of the church. Well, following the lineage of Catholicism, Peter is the first pope, is what they call him. And then from Peter, the torch is passed down following to today, where you have uh, the popes of the 19th, 20th, 21st century, where there feels seems to be an extreme disconnect from the traditional the super traditional approach to the religion and the and the customs of the catholic faith it it feels today as if catholicism and christianity are are two completely different religions and faiths the roots are the same but the the offspring and the and the blooming of the flowers it seem when you have non denominational uh, or charismatic churches today or just you know more along the lines of, I guess, your your non-denominational branches of churches, and you compare that to traditional Catholicism or even Eastern Orthodox, it almost feels like they're completely different faiths at this point in time, which is very interesting. But all the roots and the seeds start here. And the truth is, when you go to church to church to church, We shouldn't be preaching a different Jesus. We're not selling a different Jesus. We're not preaching about a different Jesus. It's the same stories. It's the same books. It's the same lineage. But the approach on worship can be different. Uh, Not to scold or or take back, but it's more of the, the, the plea to go back to the roots. And when you see all these sects of Christianity going crazy, just like the modern man into individualism and every branch seems so different there's a point where you have to kind of cut the plant off at the roots and let it start over for the health of it and you're seeing that a lot today there there are movements going on where churches are rallying together in a really really cool way but it all starts here and and the writings and the letters and the structure of the church comes from this man and it is hilarious considering some of the moral bankruptcies we see in the modern church. Yet this, along with Peter, obviously, but, but Saul is who becomes Paul is such a critical character. Yet this is his testimony. This is his story. This is, his, this is a chapter in his life that made him who he's going to become. So Saul approved of his execution. Stephen is dead. Great, holy, righteous man dead in the streets. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, dragging off men and women, and committed them to prison. Philip proclaims Christ in Samaria. So this is chapter 8, verse 4 now. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So just like Stephan, Philip is performing these miracles. He's preaching, he's teaching just as Jesus did. He's doing the same things that Jesus was doing. He's doing the same things that the apostles were doing. Simon the magician believes. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic And after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So the magician is being amazed by the miracles being performed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem prayed that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So there's a subsect in my Reformation Bible. It's a passage called Jesus' Heavenly Reign. <clears throat> that I'm gonna pass by for, for now. And uh, continuing on, Philip and the Ethiopian church, or the in the Ethiopian eunuch. And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing, but Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, the, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. And that is... It so Philip, having had this miraculous encounter with the with the Ethiopian eunuch, and seeing that even an Ethiopian eunuch could be saved in through Jesus, this the Spirit of the Lord it says it carried him away, meaning he he was so in touch with the will of God that he at that moment. Became a nomad in an evangelical manner. He passed through and preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So there's a lot to unpack. It's just wild to think that so much happens in that chapter. Stephen is killed. Saul approves the execution. Uh, Saul is just starting in his career as being very renowned as a man representing both Rome and the Greek culture. Uh, he's also Hebrew, but he is very much against this way that is seeming like in it's seeming like domestic terrorism, and they want to eradicate it. But something must have been off the way as Stephen was dying. He wasn't cursing them, he was praying for them. Just as Jesus did not curse his murderers, but he prayed for them. And all these seeds are being planted. And Philip, knowing what just happened to Stephen, continues to do the works of the Lord. And not only that, when he baptizes this Ethiopian eunuch, he is carried towards Caesarea to further expand the kingdom of God and the testimony of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Lastly, there's this passage called Jesus' Heavenly Reign, and I'm going to just end once I, complete, once I finish reading this. Christ's present role and glory is commonly referred to as His heavenly session, His sitting at God's right hand. The New Testament pictures Jesus' heavenly activity as standing ready to act, walking among His people, and riding to battle. But it regularly expresses His present authority by saying that He sits at the Father's right hand, not to rest, but to rule. The picture is not of inactivity, but of authority. In Psalms 110, God sets the Messiah at His right hand, as king and priest, as king to bring his enemies under his feet, and as priest to serve God and direct God's grace forever. Christ rules over all spheres of authority, whether angelic or human. His kingdom, in a direct sense, is the church, the body over which he is the head, governing it by his word and spirit. As for the state, it is not related to the kingdom of God as it was in the Old Testament. The sword is not to be used to enforce Christ's kingdom, but Christ uses secular authority to maintain civil peace and order and commands his disciples to submit to rulers. Christians seek in every sphere of life to do his will, reminding themselves and others that all are accountable to Christ as judge, whatever their position in life may be. Christ's session will continue until all his enemies and ours, including death, are brought to nothing. Death, the last enemy, will cease to exist when Christ, at his appearing, raises the dead for judgment. Once judgment has been executed, the work of the mediatorial kingdom will be over, and Christ will triumphantly deliver the kingdom to the Father. God bless.